the problem really is, are you reporting your trials in a transparent and accurate way? Or are you misleading your readers? Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University. And today we have a special guest, Henry Drysdale, who is a junior doctor and honorary clinical research fellow in the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine in the University of Oxford. Uh, along with Ben Goldacre, Henry co-founded and managed the Compare Trials Project, which had the lofty goal of systematically correcting the record on a cohort of clinical trials in five top medical journals. Henry, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, perfectly okay. When when these were when these were published, this is a, this this happens occasionally with us, Henry. Something's published, and th- this was recently. This was uh, earlier this week or last week. How much have I it aged? Was, uh, it was Valentine's Day, actually. Valentine's <laughs> Day, <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a romantic gift to the world of uh, two Absolutely. two very open, very data driven papers on what it's like to try and systematically correct clinical trials. You are a romantic at heart, sir. <laughs> um, this this was one of those papers where within sort of maybe half an hour of having read it, um, I was on the on the internets to Daniel going, we have to talk about this. Mm. We have to talk about this. We have to do this one. This is this is fun. I like this, but it probably wasn't very much fun to do. You kind of had a mountain to climb on this one. How did it all get started? Yeah. Well, it was it was interesting. It was. Um it, it it kind of was fun, but it was also lots of other things. It was also uh, <laughs> intimidating at times. It was hard work. Um, it was uh, difficult. We had to sort of um, work out how to respond to things, how exactly we were going to uh, get the work done, because it turned out to be quite quite a lot of work for for each trial. Um, and uh, we we had to be strategic. We had to limit our scope. So so it was it was uh, lots of things, but it was certainly fun at times it was informative uh it was uh yeah a formative and important experience for all of us i think um i mean it got started because i i i was interested in evidence-based medicine for a long time as a kind of bright-eyed bushy-tailed medical students um i became interested part partly through reading ben's books actually uh and partly through uh carl hannigan has has a blog and I'd seen those guys speak before. So I was interested in kind of the infrastructure behind the evidence that we use to make clinical decisions. So when, when you know, I was at medical school at the time. So when your professors or the doctors you're working with say things, make, make, uh, make claims, uh, I became interested in, you know, how do we know that? And also to what extent do we know that? And how reliably do we know that? Um, which are all questions that the broader field of evidence-based medicine tries to address. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I became interested in, in working in the field and doing some research. And um, Ben and Carl and I sat down together and Ben had this idea of looking at outcome switching, but, but um, with the kind of novel approach of trying to systematically correct it with these with these letters to the editors um and and i mean pretty quickly i i had a bunch of friends at medical school um and other 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 medical students who are interested and we got this team together 
Um, and it just kind of uh, sparked and the whole thing grew very quickly and we got our act together and, and got things started pretty, pretty soon after that init- initial conversation, actually. And that was in, yeah, October 2015. Can, can you briefly Rock explain what outcome switching is and why this is a problem? Yeah, sure. Um, briefly is the challenging part there. Uh, <laughs> so, so outcome switching, broadly speaking, is when uh, trialists report outcomes that are different in some way from those that they pre-specified, i.e. different from the outcomes they originally said they were going to report. So that can take many forms. It can be pre-specified outcomes that simply weren't reported. So let's say the authors said that they were going to measure a reduction in blood pressure at six months, and then they just it just doesn't appear in the trial report. It can be uh, new outcomes added into the trial reports that were never pre-specified. So suddenly there's this big, exciting primary outcome, uh, which is, um, let's say, cholesterol levels after one year, and actually that was never pre-specified. Um, or it can be uh, pre-specified outcomes that are misreported. So we saw that often, uh, which is like a pre-specified outcome initially registered as a primary outcome, but downplayed to a secondary outcome in the trial report. And that's kind of a, an interesting, subtler way of misreporting your outcomes. Um, so uh, th- there are several ways it can happen. I think one important thing to say is that outcome switching as a kind of term for misreporting outcomes refers to when um, those discrepancies are not declared. So, so in, in many clinical trials, there are discrepancies between what um, researchers said they were going to report and what they end up actually reporting. And there are many very valid reasons for doing so, but you have to declare that in your trial report, which right. is well-established so the, so, so the, the problem, the problem at the center of it, it's not doing exploratory research on data that you have previously said would be analyzed in a certain way. It's not declaring the fact that that's happening. It's exactly. take, taking yeah. a primary outcome and downgrading it, taking a secondary outcome and upgrading it, um, forgetting about them all together, et cetera, et cetera. Because I mean, there's lots of there's some clinical trials are enormous, right? And some yeah. secondary outcomes are extremely important. So and, and things that you find purely by circumstance or partially by design will pop up when you have great big bags of data that can be used to address lots of different questions. So the problem is just saying everything was pre-specified in our clinical trial registration and then not saying how what you've put in a paper reporting about that was actually specified. Yeah, that that pretty much that pretty much says it, um, and and I think that uh, that's the key. What you said just then is is uh, what you put in the trial reports. So, um, I mean, th- there are lots of other parts of this in terms of the design of clinical trials and your choice of outcomes and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. You know, which, which can be um, better or worse in terms of trial methodology. Uh, what we looked at w- was trial reporting, and and I think you you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, there and and the 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 problem really is are you um uh are you reporting your trials in an in a transparent and accurate way or are you misleading your readers um you know deliberately or subconsciously or through through error or whatever but um the the question is are you reporting your trial in a transparent way or are you misleading your readers uh 
by leading them to think that um, your outcomes that you've reported are what was intended all along. Right on. So what, what's, what's the raw guts of it? How many did you analyze? How many did you find that were misreported? So uh, we, we took all the clinical trials in a six-week period in five top medical journals, which were uh, JAMA, BMJ, Annals of Internal Medicine, New England Journal of Medicine, and The Lancet. Um, so the, those are sort of five very high-impact factor general medical journals. Um, we took all the clinical trials published in a six-week period, which turned out to be 68 trials in total. Oh, we God. found that 57 of them, uh, which was 87%, sorry, uh, 67 trials total, 58 out of the 67, which is 87% of them contained some sort of discrepancy between pre-specified and reported outcomes. Um, now, that's a whole mixture of uh, primary outcomes, secondary outcomes, not reported, new outcomes added in, or pre-specified outcomes misreported either as, as primary or secondary. So, so it was a whole mixture of those things. But overall, 87% of the trials we looked at contained some sort of undeclared outcome discrepancy, um, which required, as per our, um, the plan for our whole project, that meant that uh, 58 of the 67 required correction letters. Um, so that was kind of the the overall result. And then we, we broke it down into primary outcomes, secondary outcomes, and novel outcomes as well. Were you surprised by this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. So, so we were a team of uh, five medical students, graduate medical students, three senior academics, uh, and then we had a coder as well. And we also had a, a very good uh, qualitative researcher who helped us particularly with the second paper. Uh, so there was a mixture of kind of um, experience in this in this field. Uh, the senior researchers, which was uh, Carl Hennigan, Ben Goldacre, and Kamal Matani, um, all excellent academics at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, they were kind of, um, they were surprised, but not, you know, the, 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 their world wasn't, shattered <laughs> whereas you know us as kind of you know, us as kind of uh you know as i said bright-eyed bushy-tailed medical students trusting in the system and the institutions and traditions that we, uh. that we have learned from and rely on we, we we were kind of shocked and appalled actually um at the the state of things when you just scratch beneath the surface and and when you just just probe it slightly with a kind of um individual accountability we were we were kind of shocked at what we found um i mean ev everyone was surprised at the extent of it and the things that people said but but i think us as as uh you know newcomers in this area were were particularly shocked yeah i don't think for a lot of these people there's any malice involved i don't, I don't think for the, right. for the majority of people it seems to be a fundamental miseducation when it comes to how these things work and some mm. of the responses that you got from the authors were actually quite revealing in how they actually dealt mm. with these things. And it, some of the responses clearly demonstrated they don't actually understand. And this is startling. These are people who are publishing work in top medical journals. Um, do, can you go through some of these responses that that, that you got or some of these things? I, I think- uh, Yeah. 
It was, um, I think, uh, yeah, one of the things from the paper was um, three teams of trialists incorrectly stated that they should have retrospectively updated their pre-specified outcomes <laughs> in the registry to ensure that reported outcomes were consistent with those pre-specified and presented this as an acknowledgement of error. In other words, while they acknowledged that an error was made, they seemed to continue to misunderstand the nature of the error. Yeah, wow. if we translate that into English, what they're saying is, oh, yeah, that doesn't match. Sorry about that. We forgot to cover it up. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so, so, yeah, I, I'm with you, Dan. I mean, I, I think um, I I agree the vast majority of the time this, this was not intentional misreporting. Um, and I, I think it. But, but I think it doesn't matter whether it's sure. intentional or not. Sure. You know, I, I don't think it was intentional the majority of the time. And also, you know, it doesn't lead to patient harm the majority of the time. Mm. I would say it, it pretty much always harms the evidence, you know, in terms of translation of these big trials into meta-analyses uh, and then later on into guidelines, you know, and, and even, even legislation. Um, it does harm that in a, in a systematic way when you introduce these these uh biases in at the at the fundamental level of the, the clinical trial um uh but so it doesn't all it's not always uh intentional willful misreporting and it's not it doesn't always lead to patient harm however a culture of permissiveness around these forms of misreporting allows for those cases where the results are deliberately misreported or where the results do lead to patient harm which which absolutely happens um, you know, we could talk about study 329 from almost almost 20 years ago now it was one of the mm. early examples of when uh, the, the outcomes, it, it was looking at an antidepressant paroxetine uh, for the use of major depressive disorder in adolescence. And the, the sort of pivotal paper reporting its efficacy had misreported its outcomes and reported, uh, I believe, four positive outcomes, none of which had been originally pre-specified, and they were, not, they were not reported as as novel outcomes. Um, the overall conclusion of the paper was that paroxetine was effective and well-tolerated. In fact, it didn't work, and it increased suicidal behavior. Uh, but this wasn't discovered until literally millions of prescriptions had been made to adolescents and children within the first year or two. Um, and it was only really reanalyzed properly, I think, in 2015, 2014 or 2015, you know, years, over a decade after the original trial paper. So, you know, th those cases do absolutely happen where um, outcome misreporting leads to patient harms and, and death on a big scale. Um, you know, not to be too dramatic about it. No, but, it's, it's, um, no, 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 that's not, it's not, over, it's not overly dramatic at all. Look, it's, it's, it, it, it can be, when, when that filters through, this is, this is my perspective as someone who is happily and rigidly non-clinical. In the right combination of circumstances, you have a big enough trial from an influential enough group and you stick it into an omnibus analysis. The omnibus analysis directly informs how governance, uh, how how governments buy drugs, how some global health body or local health body sets their policy, what the right thing to do is under situation X, Y, Z, what prescription is responsible. And when you've got something that tips a result one way or another, or is big enough by itself to set the policy, it is. It has kind of an outsized influence on the decision that's made. That influence directly influences individual clinical decisions. And then all of a sudden you have dead and sick people. 
Absolutely, and I, I mean, I mean, um, particularly these these big journals. I would say, you know, the 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 New England Journal is 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 kind of you know worshipped as a pinnacle of medical evidence, and 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 it th- those trials can pretty quickly make their way into clinical practice. You know, it's just from from my experience of working in the hospital, you hear people say on the wards and the corridors and the operating theatres, um, you know. Well, this was shown in the New England Journal last week that X drug is effective in in Y conditions. So that that's what I'm going to do now. Um, you know, it doesn't even have to get through kind of nice guidelines or, or whatever um, national guidelines are in that particular country. The the um, results published in the New England Journal or or JAMA or the Lancet can very quickly make their way into into clinical practice you know and, and interestingly uh way you know in the case of the lancet for example this is, this is one of one of the lessons from um compare was that our letters was sometimes took six months to be published <laughs> by which time you know the, those trials are being used they're being translated into meta-analyses into guidelines into laws clinical practice you know um so that was another i mean that's a that's another that's another point altogether but uh, but it's worth it's worth noting that the the that kind of system um, does not detect these these uh, errors, which can pretty quickly make their way into clinical practice. So that's a kind of a gate horse bolted situation. If you if you're waiting for the whole thing to to shake out through a normal academic process, right? So I, I think you had a very binary response from journals. Um, the the way that I understood it, I mean, you wrote to five journals. Two of them said, oh, leave an online comment. Your online comment went online and then it accompanied the the journal article and it was more or less straightforward. Um, the Lancet kept the vast majority of what you sent them and it only took six months for them to be published and then probably not in the same issue or whatever is the place that the paper appeared. So when we have this problem with corrections before, look, they're not actually listed on PubMed. Uh, if things aren't linked together, then you have all sorts of problems. And then you had two journals that accepted absolutely no criticism whatsoever. So your hit rates were 100%, 100%, 80%, 0 and 0. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> so that's which, some- is, which is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it was it was fascinating. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Uh, uh, JAMA and Medjam both published none of our letters. Uh, we had what were they reasons? Uh, reason- uh, so, so the New England Journal said um, space constraints don't allow for all secondary outcomes. Well, actually, sorry, the reasons for not publishing the letters uh, they they didn't really. Give reasons. Uh, they said that your, um, they said that any interested reader can compare, as, as we've spoken about, any interested reader can compare, um, the trial registry, the reported results, uh, and the protocol to, to detect discrepancies. Um, that's not verbatim. That's a, I'm paraphrasing. Um, they, they said that. And then they said in a, in an email, which we, we put in a, a blog and I think in an appendix somewhere, um, they said, therefore, you know, your work doesn't add substantively to, to the record. Um, <laughs> so, so that was, that was what, one of their reasons. Uh, JAMA said, um, that, 
uh, yeah, they said they said. So, well, let me let me see if I can get the exact uh, wording up because I think that would be. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to misquote anyone if they're important. <laughs> the last thing the last thing we need is to have to edit this thing. Oh, I know. Hang on. Um, let me bring it up because I think that would be helpful. Um, well, one of the things that Jammer said was uh, that our letters contained repetition between letters, uh, which I th- which I thought was an interesting comment um, because we we were doing it very systematically. Uh, and we kept finding discrepancies, so we kept writing correction letters. But apparently, one of the problems with, was that there was there was repetition between letters. Uh, All right. So if you if you get something wrong enough, often enough, then uh, criticizing <laughs> all of it means that you're just banging on about it. Oh, so so one of huh. them. Um, so How so one civilized. of the so so that, that was interesting actually. I think we discussed this in our paper from from Jammer. They rejected all of our letters, and the, the main two complaints. I have it here. Was one of them that they were the 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 letters were too vague, so we didn't a- apparently um, give enough detail on the outcomes that were uh, pre-specified and then misreported. Um, our issue with that was they simply didn't provide enough space in the letters. So there's a word limit uh, in each journal. Actually, in in Nedrum, I think it's 175 words. 175. Uh, I, yeah, that's the word limit for letters in, in Nedjim. Uh, Don't start in... off by saying hello. <laughs> exactly. Get to the point. Um, Annals, I think, was 400. And I think, I think Jammer was 350 words. Uh, but either way, you know, we, we kept it very factual. Uh, X number of outcomes were pre-specified. Um, X were reported. X were misreported as primary, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it was. But we simply didn't have enough room in the correction letters to include details of all the outcomes that were misreported. So we, you know, it was a bit of a contradiction where where Jammer said that we were too vague, but they also didn't allow us the space in the letters to uh, to correct to, to include all the details, to include sufficient detail. So so we did say this in correspondence to them in in emails that weren't published. Um, uh, but again, those are on our those are on our blog. So all these stories, we kind of blogged about them in real time and included the letters uh, and the emails so that they would be on, on the public record. Um, uh, we raised this with them and said, you know, we'd welcome guidance on how we can both include sufficient detail and stick to your word limit. Um, but at that point, we stopped receiving replies. Actually, so uh, so oh, yeah, that right. Was, you, you 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 outlived your welcome, did you? <laughs> you could say that yeah yeah oh um, man this reminds me so much of the, this this attitude i would have assumed that this attitude existed in the first place this is something that i have very definitely found in my work which is just that no mechanism exists much of the time that presupposes that this will ever happen there's no there's no previous imagination that this is possible or necessary and the system that exists to deal with it is just sort of, oh, well, write something of a length and talk to some people and maybe something will actually happen. So there's a certain kind of bemusement that you get in the responses as if to say, what, really? It's wrong? Uh, I- I'm not exactly sure how to proceed with that information. And there's something that's kind of, there's something that's a little bit stuttery about some of these responses. Uh, out of the, the two papers that you wrote, I, I 
the first one's obviously the like the the center of all the issues that happen but the qualitative paper mm. that are all the responses that you received uh, received from researchers is just this is so many people's experiences these these things uh, that you've sent that you you categorized as response styles. I think it's also it's an excellent example of how to do qualitative meta science if you're going to put put these things in order. What was the experience of the second paper like when you're trying to aggregate everything that everyone said to you about this? Uh, well, um, it, it all happened in in real time, and you know we we really weren't expecting expecting the the sheer volume of responses that we had i think we expected to be what we expected i think was either that the journals would simply say oh yes fair enough that's what we specified that's what was reported uh you know we dropped the ball there and that they would issue a correction or that we would just be ignored you know we, we kind of expected one of the two we didn't expect the sheer volume of responses across the board and really all of the journals responded in some way that gave us data, uh, you know, quantitative or qualitative data, um, whether it was publishing all of our letters, which with a variable amount of delay, such as in the Lancet, or rejecting all our letters, but giving us uh, quite a lot of qualitative information through emails, such as Nedjim and, and, and Jammer. Um, but, so we really didn't expect the sheer volume of responses from uh, trial authors and journal editors. Uh, it all happened in in real time. So so certainly for the less experienced researchers involved, such as myself, that we were a bit kind of you know deer in the headlights about it all. Um, uh, but you know we 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 pretty quickly got our act together and started to assimilate the data, started to categorize it, and and started to blog about it and discuss it both uh, amongst us and and in the public forum. Um, in terms of putting that data together, I mean, that's why we had Cicely Marston, who's a fantastic qualitative uh, researcher who, who who knows about these sorts of qualitative methods. Um, it, it's a, it's a, I mean, this is, isn't something I'm experiencing, but it was a pretty um, lengthy and arduous process to go through and try to try to sort of uh, categorize and get the taxonomy of of those uh, response styles into order. Um, you know, it involves lots of just sitting in front of the data with, you know, the radio switched off and going through it all and getting categories and going back through and checking it all fits and adding new examples and all that sort of thing. Um, but that was, uh, yeah, that was one of the most educational parts of the project for us is learning what exactly do people, first, firstly, how do people respond? You know, does does this process of, of writing letters to correct the record actually work you know this is this is what people would say is well it's it's you know science is imperfect but we have peer review we have uh the journal editors process and then even if something gets through we have sort of post-publication correspondence and peer review after after publication so you know mistakes will be picked up then one of our questions was does that actually work and, and how do people respond constructively and and you know as as you as you know it was a very mixed picture from that point of view and the other the other question that that qualitative data served to answer was why exactly does outcome switching persist you know we, we have almost 20 years worth of pretty good data um including you know cochrane systematic review showing that outcome switching is prevalent 
and introduces bias with positive outcomes uh, being twice as likely to be reported as negative outcomes. So we know it's a source of bias. And everyone agrees um, anecdotally and culturally that 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 shouldn't be the case and that outcome switching is bad. Um, But still it happens. So so why is that the case? Um, and, And I think that the the qualitative data that we gathered in these responses from, from general editors and from researchers really served to answer that. And I, I think, Dan, you said it earlier, which, uh, was, and, uh, which was one, one of the issues was, was the sheer lack of understanding about what correct outcome pre-specific, pre-specification and reporting should look like. You know, what, what should people do in terms of pre-specifying and reporting, but then also in terms of declaring discrepancies, you know, what does that look like? Um, it, and in lots of in lots of nuanced ways, you know. So, what's the difference between an outcome and an endpoint? What's the difference between an endpoint and a time point? What's or the difference between a, a secondary outcome <laughs> and an additional outcome? You know, or a, a joke probably only we'll get. What's the difference between a secondary endpoint and a key secondary endpoint? <laughs> One question we often get from listeners is how they can support the show, and we have two ways. The first is financially via Patreon, and uh, we have two support tiers. The first one is a dollar a month, and with that, you get the Everything Hurts newsletter, access to behind-the-scenes photos and videos, and that warm feeling that you are supporting the show. Uh, if you join our $5 Professor Fancy Pants tier, you get access to all those things. And in addition to that, uh, an exclusive mini episode, which is released every single month. Our last episode was on ResearchGate, and that was quite popular. So if you sign up, you get access to all the bonus episodes moving forward, but also the back catalog of bonus episodes. The second way you can, you can support the show is via social media. We would love it if you could post about the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, whatever platform you are using. Now, let's get back to the show. Where, where should the buck stop when it comes to outcome switching? Authors, mm. journals, editors. Well, I, I, yeah, I think that's that's one of the big questions from the project. Actually, is whose whose responsibility is this? Um, you know, I I don't think that it's necessarily fruitful to ask whose fault is it. Um, I, I think the key question is whose responsibility is it to fix it. I would say, I would say, in in a sense, it's all of our responsibilities to fix it. Um, as a scientist in the field, it's our responsibility to write into the editors. Um, and and correct these trials, I, I'd say uh, you know, and then everywhere along along the along the road, it's the researcher's responsibility um, to either adhere to their original pre-specification or to declare discrepancies. It's the peer reviewer's responsibility, as you said, if with direct experience yourself, um, uh, to to pick that up at peer review, um, uh, and it's the editor's responsibility to. Uh, to police for that at the editorial through the editorial process but you could also look at you know funding it's the funder's responsibility uh, you, you could say it's the funder's responsibility to to require um, good ethical reporting practice in order to fund trials so uh, I think the responsibility is shared I think the key question though is um, where is the highest yield point on the chain 
at which to address the issue. Um, I, I would say there are there are two two points, two sort of bottlenecks uh, in in the whole process where you could effectively address this issue. The first, and I think the most obvious, is at the editorial process. Um, as editors, particularly of a journal like Nedrim, where people are desperate to be published, you know, people will bend over backwards and do anything to be published in, in Nedrim. It can be a career-defining moment. So, um, you know, if the editors of Nedrim for every clinical trial simply said, we have the pre-specification here and we have the trial reports, they are different. Go away and make them not different, <laughs> i.e. report what you said you were going to report, or tell us why it's different. Otherwise, we won't look at your paper anymore. I mean, I guarantee that it would immediately be fixed. <coughs> that you know, seems like the easiest way. Yeah, because yeah, it, yeah. so the, the demand to get published in an outlet like that is massive. So, I mean, it's it's it, it, editors in a journal like that have an enormous amount of power the same way funders do. If your funder Agreed, says, yeah. if your funder says, okay, we will give you four hundred thousand pounds, so whatever that's about to be worth, which is uh seventy five US dollars, um, <laughs> we'll give you all this money. Um, you need to make a commitment right now to making all the data open, or to uh, publish in an outlet that we agree will take proper care of the editorial process. No one's going to go keep your money, sir. <laughs> keep your keep your filthy money. They all they all immediately go. Well, I should check out that open science thing. Um, <laughs> yep, fair enough. Okay, no problem. Uh, give us the cash. I mean, the powerful journals work exactly the same way. I mean, they're allowed to be standard setters like that. And of course, uh, other journals see that. Other funders see what other funders do, and it, it creates a standard. So, I mean, yeah, it is everyone's responsibility. I agree with that. And as someone who's communicated with more than one editor in a manner that might be described as mildly cranky, sure, <laughs> good. Um, but there are lots of people who have more influence than we do, and their pickup is probably more important. Yeah, agree Fair. then. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh I think that's exactly right that the journal editors um of, of particularly of these big journals have a huge amount of influence in, in the culture. So as you say, right, yeah. journals journals look at, you know, JAMA will look at what Nedrum does and uh you know, Nedrum will look at what the Lancet does and JAMA does they will set the culture amongst themselves. And I think that's why it was disappointing that the journal editors of these these big journals weren't more willing to engage. I mean, you can understand an initial reaction of resistance. I mean, you know, it all gets a bit human factors at this stage, but I think we all agree it would be a fairly brittle world if if every criticism was immediately accepted. You know, I I, I get that, um, particularly for people who have worked on trials for. 10 years of their career and then some crocky medical student comes along and 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 has a look at them and holds know. them to the standard that they've <laughs> agreed to keep yeah yeah, yeah. no you, i mean you I mean, I, bastard <laughs> no i you know I, um I, I i i stand by what we did in the name of of uh the standards of reporting that we all that we all subscribe to but 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 you know I, I can understand um from a behavioral point of view an initial kind of general resistance or or um a desire to at least check out what 
what these guys are talking about and not just immediately accept everything. But I think we were disappointed at the um, the complete lack of uh, willingness to engage and look at the issue and um, and and be humble about the quite clear um, violations of ethical reporting standards that were demonstrated in these journals. I, I think we were, yeah, we were all disappointed at, at the the extent to which journals really wouldn't wouldn't look at this. Um, not all journals. I mean, the mm. BMJ issued a correction on one of the trials, um, but but the general tone, particularly from Annals and Jammer and, and Nedjam, uh, was one of resistance. I would say. Um, right. Yeah. What, and about it, the, it, what about the response from everyone else? How's it been received? I mean, this is—it's been out yeah. since Valentine's Day. Now we're we're recording <laughs> this uh, about a week later. Everyone's sh- shaken off their champagne and uh, chocolate hangover. So you had about a week to hear from the rest of the world about how all this is shaking out. How's it been received? Well, I, I mean, it's it's really interesting it, d- during the project and the correspondence afterwards. You know, at uh, conferences and. Um, in, in discussions with other academics throughout the whole process, including with the attention it's been getting since since uh, since 14th. Um, anyone who are not holding immediately accountable has been overwhelmingly supportive hmm. of, of our work, um, understanding of the methods, uh, acknowledging of the importance um, and 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 supportive of, of our results and our interpretation of it. Um, so, so th- there is an interesting thing here of, of that holding people individually accountable makes them defensive. Um, I think so. So, yeah, I mean, every, so everyone who, who has not been directly involved in a, in a trial that we've analyzed um, has been, supportive of the principle understanding of our results and and supporting of our publications and, and conclusions um and, and sort of similarly outraged um so so i would say yeah that's that's a general response is is one of support interestingly even even the the, the trialists and journal editors that we've spoken to in a uh you know spirit of discussion or critique of of these of these trials, um, they, they will all agree to it in theory. You know, so we had many comments, um, and that's one of the categories actually in our in our uh, uh, taxonomy of um, response styles was, uh, you know, agreement with co- uh, the, the consort guidelines in principle, but a statement as to why the report misreporting we've detected is an exception to that. Um, or, or a statement as to why we've made a mistake in this case, you know. So, yeah, so yeah, even we, we, even we during the project, we absolutely support. We absolutely support <laughs> this particular. This is a, a, a valuable and illuminating project uh, yeah. designed to highlight an important problem. It just happens to, in this case, where it's relevant, not be relevant. <laughs> I want to talk course. about, yeah, uh, yeah, and that yeah. only happened in all of them. I want to talk about space constraints. Now, yes. I think uh, this, this is a response that you got from a few uh, a few authors and I think a few uh, editors and journals as well. Uh, and this is something which is just a reality of scientific publishing is that there's only so much space to report stuff. Uh, I don't think there's any excuse not to be reporting all your primary outcomes. They're your primary outcomes. However, a lot of studies, considering how resource intensive they are, 
uh, have a number of secondary outcomes. And in some circumstances, there is not the space to report these things. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, the short answer is I, I really think there's there's no excuse full stop for undeclared discrepancies between pre-specified and reported outcomes. Um, the argument about space restraints, we had, we had that from uh, the New England Journal editors as well as several authors. Um, I, I believe Annals might have said that as well, but don't quote me on that. Um, and there were, there were two things that people said. One was that there were space constraints in the trial registries, uh, which was interesting. And huh? another that's, one, that's not true, is it? Sorry, it, I, as far as far as I know, there are no space constraints in trial. That's not true. Yeah, uh, it's not a lot of data. A trial registration is tiny. It's a couple of bytes or something. Surely, absolutely, at maximum. absolutely. And and you know, an outcome um, does not contain many words in terms of its pre-specification. You have to say what it is you're measuring, like blood pressure, when it is you're measuring it, which is six months, um, and the method you're using to to measure it. So, you know, standard manual blood pressure management or, or whatever it might be, or blood pressure, um, sorry, sorry, blood pressure, depression, you can edit that bit out. <laughs> edit that bit. Uh, or, or depression using one of the depression scores, of which there are many, you know. So you have to say what you're measuring, how you're measuring it, and when you're measuring it, but that doesn't take many words. Um, and as you say... Oh, it feels are- a bit big data to me, mate. I mean, if you say if you got if you got four hundred million of those and uh, and put them in a pivot table, that would be that would be enormous. No, come on, seriously, someone made that argument. There's not enough space in the registries. Yeah, yeah, that was that was some that was something we heard. Um, oh, that's a midnight howler. Someone so, just someone so just going. Like, oh, I've got to say something to these guys. I'll just I mean, write this in terms down. Of, <laughs> in terms of the um, in terms of in the in the uh, journal papers themselves. That was a an argument we heard more commonly was that they didn't contain enough space to report all pre-specified outcomes. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Dan, that I think uh, there's no excuse for not reporting primary outcomes, yet we know that from the systematic review um, and from our data, which is consistent with that, that um, you know around a third of all primary outcomes are not reported. A third of all primary outcomes. Primary you know, outcomes, right. It's the reason you got out of bed and got money to do trial. it in the first place. Exactly. That's that's why the trial was approved by the ethics committee, by the funders, you know, by the journals, etc. Was was this kind of big headline result that you're after, and a third of all those are not are not reported. Um so 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 I totally agree with you. That should just be prioritized in terms of space. Um I think it does not take much space at all to at least mention pre-specified outcomes. You know, to say these outcomes were pre-specified but not reported does mm. not take much space in a journal paper. I cannot believe that there simply are not enough words, although there is not enough space to put enough words to say that. I can't, I can't believe that as a, as a... I can't accept that as an argument uh, and as a justification for... Um, outcome switching uh yeah so 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 i think that's just not a valid argument to be honest um to to, so so firstly to to, so misreporting outcomes which is one form of of outcome switching clearly takes the same number of words as correctly reporting outcomes you know misreporting a primary outcome as a secondary outcome doesn't doesn't take more words So, so that's there's no excuse for that from that perspective. Um, 
uh, adding new outcomes in that were novel, um, again, adds extra words to the trial report. So, I mean, if yeah, you're going to... Yeah, but how many? Look, let's, 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 let's write it out now. This, uh, this outcome was exploratory and not reported in the clinical trial registration. That's quite explicit. Uh, ten words. Agreed. Agreed. Ten word solution. Well, yeah, take that, Yuri. I've knocked 50% off. <laughs> now, Henry, I'm sure, I'm assuming yeah. you're familiar with the uh, the registered reports format. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, when I personally heard about registered reports, I thought, uh, why reinvent the wheel? We already have clinical trial registrations. We have clinicaltrials.gov and the European equivalent. Um, so, why don't we use them instead? But then when I actually look closer into the registered reports format, um, in which papers are accepted in principle based on their methods and their rationale, I thought this mm. this is this is the way to go. Um, do you think that registered reports? I mean, okay, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. I think registered reports would solve this problem. However, mm. perhaps would this work within medicine? I, I mean, I think it's difficult to say in terms of in terms of would it work. Um, I think. I think it's an intelligent solution that incentivizes good trial methodology and reporting. So I'm 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 with you there that from that perspective it has a, a high chance of improving the problem. Um I think that none of us should be complacent about solutions. You know, we already thought we had solutions with with trial the the point of clinicaltrial.gov and uh, or um or the Europe or OJC um, or an, any trial registration, as the, the um, uh, what's it called, the ICMJE, International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, um, they they made uh, clinical trial registration a requirement specifically to address selective outcome reporting. That was over a decade ago, and not much has changed. So, so I think that um, registered reports is is. An intelligent uh, solution to to address the problem, but I don't think that any of us should be complacent about solutions. None of us should should assume that because uh, journals or trialists endorse any of these things. So so whether it's the consult guidelines that people um, you know you sign up to or endorse in inverted commas um, or subscribe to or whatever um, uh, or um yeah or 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 clinicaltrials.gov or just general good standards of of trial reporting um as stated on their their websites or whatever i don't think that any of us should be complacent about these initially superficial claims to good practice um and that's one of the main things that we've learned is that you know 585 journals are listed as endorsing the consort guidelines um, one of the things we actually heard from the nature editors was, oh, we, we don't require authors to comply with consort. That was one of the things they said. Um, that was the first, actually, the first thing they said okay. in their response to us in, in, in emails was, um, you know, thank you for your uh, correction letters. Again, I'm, I'm slightly paraphrasing. The full text is available on our blog. Um, they said, you know, thank you for your correction letters. Um, we should make it clear that we, we don't and never have required authors to comply with consorts. But they're listed. What consort thinks of that? 
Well, exactly. And, and you know, they've got this list of 585, it was, it was 585 at the time, it may have changed, um, 585 journals listed as endorsing consorts. That seems like a fix. You think, great. Well, consort requires trial um, outcome pre-specification and subsequent uh, reporting or declaration of discrepancies. All these journals sign up consort, therefore problem solved. What we found is that just simply doesn't happen and, and it hasn't really touch the problem at all our um rates of uh outcome misreporting that we found in compare are comparable to all previous studies on the prevalence of outcome misreporting showing that the the problem broadly speaking has not really been fixed or or even improved significantly so so these these um solutions and endorsements of guidelines such as consort um and uh, signing up to things like registered reports, d- don't. Uh, whilst whilst they are important and may well work, they you know registered reports might work, but I think we shouldn't be complacent about it. I think we 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 need to keep being vigilant and uh, holding journal editors and trial authors accountable for uh, poor reporting practice. Now it's been a week since you published this paper. And I'm assuming out of these five journals, at least one of them would have published a clinical trial since the publication of this. (laughs) Have you had a look (laughs) and has there been any discrepancies since the publication? Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question. Um, Well, uh, so, you know, the the trials, the, the, um, sorry, the journals and the editors have known about us obviously for some time now, um, ever since they got their sort of third or fourth letter from us. I think they, you know, back in November 2015, I think they caught on that we, we were going to be making a habit of this and they started to take notice um, and started to think about it and started to respond. Um, so so um, that question has been one that's been on our minds ever since then really is, is, is practice going to change now that... Um, so that we, we saw... Um, small changes in policy. So, for example, at Annals of Internal Medicine, I mean, they, they, I think they claimed it wasn't because of us, um, or they certainly didn't attribute it to us, but they didn't, they did change their instructions to authors to say that, um, an original protocol with dated amendments was a requirement for submission of a manuscript. Uh, that was, you know, uh, or uh, correlated with our work, let's say, um, even though causation was not uh claimed uh so 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 you know we, we have seen minor policy changes and there's anecdotal uh evidence from journalists we, editors we've spoken to at conferences and things like that um that practice is changing and that uh we wouldn't be seeing that sort of thing in future we did actually go back and uh, re-audit at six months, which, which in hindsight was probably slightly too soon. Um, we, we, we haven't published that data yet. We, we're writing it up at present. Um, we, we found that there was, broadly speaking, no change in practice at six months. Um, I agree it would be really interesting to know if practice has changed, particularly after the papers have been published. Unfortunately, it's a monumental amount of work of course. To, to show mm-hmm. that insufficient detail. Um, you know, we had to be extremely thorough uh, with, our, with our initial analyses of the, of the trials we looked at in, 
in the initial compare cohorts. Um, and, and it took us a team of us, two initial coders and a senior academic review um, and, a, and, and a group meeting. We had at least uh, two kind of two or three hour meetings per week um, throughout the whole process, just in order to detect, uh, you know, sometimes it was hours to detect all the discrepancies in one trial. And also to make sure we hadn't missed a declaration. You know, we had to be sure that what we were saying was was correct. When we said these are undeclared discrepancies, we had to make sure that there wasn't a word in, you know, any of the appendices or the supplementary files or the long trial reports that declared um, the discrepancies that we found. Um, so that it's an enormous amount of work. And unfortunately, it, it's too much work to police this on an ongoing basis. Um, I, I would, I, I would love to know the extent to which it's changed. Anecdotally, um, so I, I actually, I had a patient the other day who, um, who cited a paper to me, uh, from, from JAMA. Uh, and, um, it was a patient who, uh, was essentially undergoing, um, an experimental therapy for a kind of cancer that they had. Um, and, uh, they they were admitted to hospital for other reasons, but they wanted to know um, was the treatment that they that we were giving them in in hospital for this acute problem going to interfere with this experimental treatment that they were getting uh, from a professor in London, um, and the the patient and their spouse cited this paper to me from from JAMA. So I thought, well, here's an interesting kind of real world clinical example where I've been presented with a randomized control trial from JAMA by a patient who I'm treating. Um, I, I had a quick look at it. My, my plans, I won't give everything away. My plan is to start writing a, a, a blog with some kind of real-time um, analyses of papers, um, uh, sort of, a sort of weekly blog of these analyses. So I won't give everything away because I'm planning to include this one. Um, my... Uh, so, so my initial impression from from that paper and from others that I've looked at briefly is 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 that there are still discrepancies. There's there's more um, chat, for want of a better <laughs> term, in the papers about uh, protocols, about transparency, about pre specification, and about correct reporting. You know, there are more there are there are more statements from editors and uh, authors in the papers about adherence to protocols, about pre-specification, about exploratory outcomes, that sort of, sort of thing. So we don't have hard evidence, but anecdotally, my suspicion is that slowly people are catching on and people are starting to take notice. On that note, we will uh, finish up. Uh, Henry, where can people find you online? Twitter, blog? Yeah, so uh, we are on Twitter at compare underscore, uh, sorry, at compare underscore trials. Uh, we have a website, compare-trials.org. Um, and uh, Ben Goldhaker, who has lots of following, for, oh, man, this is where the post nights thing is kicking <laughs> in. Um, I'm sure lots of you already follow Ben Goldhaker on Twitter. He talks about compare a lot. Um, you can follow me at, at Henry M. Drysdale. The M stands for meta research, um, and we all talk about it a lot. So you can find us at any of those uh, any of those places. We will be uh, posting all those links on our show notes. But again, Great. Henry, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, oh, you're most welcome. <laughs>